welcome to another edition of Making Money, the show that tries to provide a little bit of financial literacy with the financial coach, Ron Hebert, retired portfolio manager. That means he looked after people's money, friends. And I'm Gord Whitehead, a retired broadcaster. Ron and I have known each other for decades. We both have a, obviously, deep interest in finance and trying to get people information that's valuable. And we want to take a look at demographics. This is something that used to pertain very much in the industry I was in, Ron, in broadcasting. If you didn't have the right broadcast demographics, you couldn't sell the advertising. So I know a little bit, probably more than the average guy, about demographics. But how does this pertain to investing? Well, we're going to take a look at the silent generation, the boomers, the what's called the echo generation or Generation X. We'll take a look at the millennials, Generation Y. Then we'll go to Generation Z, which is the, the generation that came uh, upon us in the last 15 years. And we'll look at what their priorities are, how they think. And surprisingly enough, we have come across a complete arc over the years of changes in preference. So the silent generation and the boomers that followed, uh, there was a little change, not that much. With Generation X, it changed a little more. But then with the millennials and with Generation Z, or Z, it's changed dramatically. And so you look at millennials today, the oldest millennials are going to be 40 years old. And they're just getting at the point in their career where they're starting to have income, they're starting to have social mobility and social power, they're starting to have political power because they're getting into offices. And also you look at Generation Z, which are the university generation, and certainly it's often the universities or places of higher education where you see new ideas and thought that often carries its way through the next generation. Look at the boomers when uh, they had Haight-Ashbury and all the other uh, rebellion that they had in the 70s and how that carried through and changed society. Well, you think society was changed by the boomers. As the old saying goes, you ain't seen nothing yet. And so if you're going to be a successful investor, you have to know what each of these generations, what are their major characteristics, how old they are, what their major viewpoints are, both politically, socially, how they spend their money, because it's going to be those preferences that are going to trump virtually everything else uh, when it comes to what you should buy, when you should buy, when you should sell. So since demographics are so important, we're going to literally have three shows on the topic to try and get you to have you put your head around this massive, important influence on the investment landscape. Okay, let's start way back when, if you will, the silent generation, as they are called. Now, this is an interesting generation because they were born between 1925 and 1945. So essentially, they missed out on the Second World War. Like my, my father-in-law, he's 94, and he caught the last two years of the war. But for the most part, this is a generation that showed up right after World War II. They entered the workforce in the biggest labor boom in history. 
and for the most part were the major beneficiaries of the rise of the middle class. They had careers for life, often with generous pension plans. They bought homes, and there was a massive housing boom in the 50s, and they were able to lock in 3% mortgages for the life of their term. Uh, in their peak saving years, they took advantage of the high rates in the 70s and 80s and the strong stock markets in the 80s and 90s. And so they have comparatively large amounts of wealth. People in this bracket are the wealthiest ever. And it, Canadian, in Canada alone, it's estimated their current net worth is around $900 billion. Most younger generations are rubbing their hands because that's going to be passed on to them in an inheritance. And uh, they say the average inheritance in Canada is going to be around $180,000, which is going to help the next generation pay off their debts, and literally save for retirement. There are 2.5 million people in Canada that are 75 or older. 45% of them are widows. They have both the time and the money to indulge their baby boomer kids and the generations that follow. So this is a generation that, frankly, is the, often called the bailout generation because literally they're going to bail their kids out of the debt that they've created and as a result, uh, many kids will actually be solvent for the first time in their lives when they get their inheritance. Little notice to you long, young listeners out there. That's why you treat mom and dad and grandma and grandpa with a little bit more respect than you might right now. <laughs> right. And so we're going to get into this a little further on. But these people have money to do things. And uh, certainly, uh, they also have higher health care costs. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more in, uh, in our next session as well on baby boomers. Okay, so baby boomers, that's where well, you and I fall in there, right? I, I was born in 1953, Gord. So I am in the uh, essentially the, the early third of the boomer generation, which is essentially 1945 to 1946, and it ends around 1964-65. And so you go to 10 different sites, they give you a little bit different dates, but generally the consensus is the 20 years after World War II, they're currently between about 57 and 75 years old, and they are about a quarter of the population. So they're a big, big demographic. And, and we think differently than the, the young people do. There's no getting around that. Like We handle things a lot differently, especially our financial affairs, right? We handle things differently. Uh, we do our branch banking at, uh, at the local branch. We shop at department stores. We use traditional media like radio and television. We communicate to each other in person or over the phone. Uh, we like owning vehicles. We like taking car vacations. Uh, we like to go on cruises. Uh, and we love to live in suburbia, which is, frankly, uh, almost the exact opposite of the following generations. All right, so let's take a look at some of the characteristics and trends that boomers seem to encompass here. Pension systems. <clears throat> Boy. <laughs> In the 2020s, we'll have more grandparents than grandchildren. Put another way, more people over 65 than people under five years of age. We've never had that in our history. In this decade, Close to 800 million people globally will join the silver or over 65 economy. This will put huge pressure on pensions. Pensions were never designed 
to have that many people collecting benefits. And of course, they've tried to raise the age of retirement to 70, but politically it's unpopular and anybody that tries that, it's pushed back. But sooner or later, they're going to have to do that because they're literally going to run out of money. Now, the Canada Pension Plan is in pretty good shape. Last time I looked, it, it had enough reserves to look after people for 75 years. But it's old age security and uh, the other, other benefits that, uh, that you get <clears throat> a supplement. And certainly in the U.S. and Europe, where the, in Europe specifically, where they have a huge cohort of the population that is retiring. Literally, it's going to bankrupt countries trying to pay these people or pay for their pensions. So there's going to be some very big changes that take place just in how countries deal with pensions and where they're going to get the money to be able to do it. Everything that's been going on since President Biden was elected, Ron, and the money that he has been throwing out there, the spending initiatives that he's put out, we keep hearing trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars. When you sent me this information and I saw that number, the total pension deficit in the United States is $28 trillion. That's on top of everything else that they've got to manage, right? Yeah, and they have budget deficits and they have so many other, they got healthcare problems. You know, they literally have a tsunami, just like Canada does, of extra expenses over the next few years. And, you know, looking at healthcare as well, healthcare expenses for people over 65 are five to six times greater than they are for those under 18. And as there are more and more old people as a percentage of the population, you can just expect health care costs to, to rise dramatically. And, of course, we're going to develop some investment themes on the third week of the show. And you want to stay tuned for that because health care is one of those big themes, and we'll give you some ideas on how to play it as well. One little addition to that $28 trillion pension deficit figure that every year the life expectancy goes up, that number increases by a trillion. So it doesn't get any smaller. <laughs> People no, are living it is longer, getting, right? th that number is getting staggering. Okay. And of course, <clears throat> I mean, I have a fairly dim view uh, many times on the, uh, the political class, not only in our country, because of elsewhere, because either when they talk, it's like these problems don't exist. So if you, personally, I think if, if somebody's elected and they don't even understand these problems exist, then they're not smart enough or don't have enough knowledge to get my vote. But if they do know these problems exist and they sugarcoat them, then it's telling me that they're not telling me the truth. And to me, that also disqualifies them from getting my vote. So, you know, I just, I look at the, the, the political class in this country and they're, they're telling us what we want to hear. I'm not saying they're to blame. We're to blame because we vote for them. They're not telling us what we need to know. And certainly, I think part of that is because I don't know if we necessarily want to hear it. But somebody's got to stand up one of these days and clearly explain to people what this means in monetary terms to their pocketbook. Because these are big social issues that are going to have to be dealt with. Because if they're not dealt with, then you start seeing class strife and more literally violent demonstrations, looting, and you just have the social fabric of the country dissolving as you polarize to the left and right. So 
if someone doesn't have the courage to deal with this stuff, the political rift in society is going to be something that, frankly, uh, I shudder when I think about it. Okay, back to the boomers. Uh, A lot of boomers took pretty good care of their financial houses. Some didn't, and so they continue to work even past the sort of accepted retirement age of 65, correct? Well, you've got boomers in 1985 that were uh, 10% of the population uh, that was 65 or older that stayed in the workforce. Well, today that number is 20%, and it's actually going up. And one of the major factors is finances. People blew themselves up in 2007 and 9, and they haven't recovered. And also is the fact that literally half of that population over 65 that's still working have college degrees, and frankly, they're not necessarily ready to give up work. And the investment implications are the boomers are going to have even more money to pass on to their kids and grandkids. So they're really working hard at improving their nest egg. And of course, retired people don't spend nearly as much as as, uh, the experts say they do, which means there's going to be even a bigger bailout for the next generation. How about this this topic, and this one that's kind of near and dear to my heart, and I know it is to yours as well, and having assets nobody wants, and, and we think in particular automobiles, right? Yeah. I know. I went to a show and shine in St. Albert here. It was probably about two years ago, and I saw some of the greatest muscle cars ever made, Corvettes, Mustangs, Chargers, Camaros, Firebirds, GTOs, Cudas, Chevelles. They were all beautifully restored and, you know, gorgeous cars. And you could just see the pride in the owner's faces as you talk to them about how much work went in that car. And right now there's high demand from boomers wanting to relive the memories of their youth. And that's pushed up prices dramatically. But if you look at an at auction like Barrett Auction, all the guys in the room are old, white-haired, between 60 and about 75. And they're not trading to new buyers they're trading among themselves, and they keep pushing the price up. It's an extraordinarily artificial market. So the problem is who's going to buy these cars when this generation is gone and these vehicles end up on the auction block? I don't think millennials or Generation Z are even remotely interested. And even worse, you've got other things. Like I remember my mother when she was downsizing. She had a Royal Dalton set, and I think she'd probably spent 10 to 15 grand on it. And she wanted to know if we wanted it. And none of the kids wanted it. And the list went on and on of other things she had, jewelry and other, other things that nobody really wanted to take. I mean, we politely took it. But, I mean, it's in storage down our basement because, and we'll eventually get rid of it because nobody wants this stuff. So if you have collectibles, especially cars, which are up literally 70% in the last decade alone. Good time to get rid of them. (laughs) Great time to get rid of them. Okay, Generation X. What about these people? Well, Generation X was born between 1965 and 1979. So, Gord, they're the generation that followed us. They're 42 to 56 years old. They are, uh, make up about 80 million people in the U.S. Growing up, they're called the latchkey generation as they were often left unsupervised after school, and they have a high level of independence. Uh, the Generation X essentially has fallen off the radar because 
they're often referred to as forgotten middle child and because baby boomers have basically sucked all the option out of oxygen out of the room they've dominated the political educational business and social arenas so uh they've left a far bigger imprint on society than the boomers because the 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 not boomers but the echo generation as they're called the one that came after the boomers because they're just a lot smaller they're a third less and it's uh there's still a generation that has much of the philosophy of the boomer generation but they're responsible for over 25% of US consumption currently and gen xers are very tech savvy spend more time raising their kids than their parents but in most other ways they're much closer in aptitude and preference to previous generations than they are future ones and they are definitely what we call the transition generation because after gen x we move to generation y and millennials and we'll certainly be talking about that on our next show and there is just a uh, a moonscape of difference between gen x gen y and certainly any of the the um groups that either preceded or followed those two this is where the demarcation line is and this is where things really start to change and we'll be discussing that as i said again on our next show okay so before we move on to our next episode ron a couple of questions that came to us through letsmakemoney.ca or cfcw.com uh, james writes us i'm uh, really he enjoyed the series on inflation deflation and stagflation He's wondering about what you think about this Line 5 situation that's going on. It's been getting some press, maybe not as much as it deserves. This is the piece of the, the pipeline that runs under the Straits of Mackinac down in, in Lake Michigan. And, and the governor of Michigan said she's going to shut it down. It's an environmental hazard. If it gets shut down, it has huge implications on specifically eastern Canada. Where do you stand on this? Well, Enbridge... Uh, produces about 3 million barrels a day of product that they push through their pipelines. And the uh, Line 5 would essentially amount to about 540,000 barrels a day. So it's significant to them, but it's only one-sixth of their total production. So would it hurt? Yes. But would it be uh, financially threatening to the company, unlikely. Now, if Line 5 was shut down, you'd also have the fact that the first thing that Enbridge would do was sue for financial damages. And because the contract was changed, uh, the legal opinions I've seen, they'd actually be very, very likely to win that contract. Also, it's not... Uh, Nobody's quite sure how much authority Michigan has because pipelines are federal jurisdiction. And so can a state unilaterally shut down its pipeline uh, that is federally regulated? Here again, the courts are going to decide this, but it looks unlikely. It looks more like um, the woman that is in charge, Gretchen Whitmer, I think, is the governor of Michigan. She's just using this as stall tactics to try and keep the pipeline uh, from being built. And it sort of uh, appeals to her her fan base. And of course, if they shut down line five, like you notice even a month ago when the U.S. was having that terribly cold snap, 
um, the governor's office in Michigan uh, put forward legislation restricting propane exports to other places so that consumers in Michigan would have enough to heat their homes because a lot of the fossil fuels required to heat homes, especially in northern Michigan, comes from that pipeline. So, you know, to be honest with you, I'm not even sure that I think there'd be a huge backlash from people who heat their homes because of that pipeline was was shut down. Where would they get their fuel to, to keep themselves warm in winter? So uh, to be honest with you, I think this is more grandstanding than anything else. Yeah, and it has huge implications in Ontario and Quebec for propane and gasoline and jet fuel and all of those things. And then people would be pushing the button with the big P on it, the panic button, uh, were it to happen. The other, the other question around this too, Ron, is you, you, you talk about Enbridge could probably weather the storm here. Would it affect their dividend? Because they pay a pretty good dividend. They pay a hefty dividend of six to seven percent, and could it affect it? Well, yes, it could. You know, if you cut uh, if you cut one sixth of your total revenue out of the uh, out of the equation, yes, it could. Would they suck it up and continue to pay it anyways, or cut it back? Well, that's purely speculation, and I don't know what would happen there. And that's certainly up to the board, but that is certainly a possibility if this did go through, which I personally think is unlikely. Okay, the other question uh, was one that we've touched on in the past, and it's about real estate and specifically owning real estate down in the Sun Belt. Uh, this comes to us from, uh, from Rod. I'm thinking about buying real estate down in the States right now, but prices are high. What are your thoughts? Well, I had a bunch of rental houses in the, in the Sun Belt, and I sold them last year. And I sold them because prices were getting really high. And as, as per usual, I got out a little early. But I still think that real estate prices are at the point where you don't consider buying right now. You consider selling. I'm a low, buy low, and sell high type guy. And I bought my properties in 2009 during the financial crisis and sold them really a decade later. So I made extraordinary gains on those things. But, you know, I tend to buy when things are cheap, not when things are at the top and might go a little bit higher. So looking at the bubble, I think we're in where people are, uh, you know, they're outbidding each other. If you in the Sun Belt and places like Toronto and Vancouver, if you list a house for half a million dollars, you might have offers that outbid uh, your asking price by fifty to $100,000. And in markets like that, anytime they've gotten crazy like that, there's always been a significant correction. So I think it's a good time to wait. So there you go. Hopefully that helps you out, Rod. And, you know, if you're thinking of laying out that investment of, you know, a couple, few, several hundred thousand dollars, I always say you can buy a lot of hotel rooms with that in the meantime. So uh, maybe that's the way to look at it. All right. We're back next week to continue our series on demographics as we begin to delve into Generation Y and Generation Z or Z, as it's called down south of the border and all of the implications therein with their thoughts and how they look at investing. We're back next week with the financial coach, Ron Hebert. We'll talk with you then. The information presented is derived from sources believed to be reliable. This material is presented for information purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Before acting on any investment information, a person should seek advice from an investment professional.
The presenters may or may not hold positions in the securities discussed on this show and will not be responsible for any losses sustained from acting on this information.